Iraq, why is Britain planning to send more troops? Does Europe really need its own army? Burundian crisis, could this be another Rwanda? Coming up, Trump, everyone said he couldn't, but he has. And Kim Jong-un is having a party. What's happened to the ceasefire in Syria? Reports from the Syrian city of Aleppo say there's been relative calm since a US-Russian agreement to extend a temporary ceasefire was announced, but there have been violations elsewhere in the country. Meanwhile, more British troops could be sent to Iraq to help train Iraqi soldiers fighting Islamic State. Here's the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon. Britain is already the second biggest contributor to the campaign, but we too will be looking to see uh, what more support we can give to the Iraqi and Kurdish forces as they move to push Daesh further out of their country. Well, Mr Fallon was speaking in Stuttgart after meeting defence ministers from other coalition countries. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. Uh, British troops remind us um, who's there and what are they doing exactly? Most of them are special forces. And the, there's reconnaissance. Uh, this is the work of, you know, the fundamental work of special forces. It's not, you know, you can't see me hoods and things like that. Um, and they are trying to give give back all the time uh, a technical, more than anything else, technical uh, intelligence picture. But they are also training people. So you've got a lot of infantry. You've got people who know how to fire different sort of heavier weapons and they are there entirely on one, an intelligence gathering special forces role uh, and two in a training role. What is interesting about this in particular we're talking about small numbers but small numbers do very big things, you know, one guy can stand up in front of a hundred people and you've multiplied it by five hundred. It's the Americans and at this meeting they've repeated it the Americans said to the British you have and you are the only people apart from us who uh, who has a, a track record and also the capability of doing these sort of roles, intelligence gathering, special forces gathering, and also training, and high levels of training. They're so good, the training teams, that they can turn round, for example, uh, a Peshmerga organisation, they can turn it round in, in, in about a month. Mm. It doesn't sound, when you listen to the Defence Secretary there, that he was willing to commit to, to more that many more troops. Why would that be? Well, you don't need many more troops. I mean, you've brought in 50, um, and 50 guys going in can do a lot of training. They can do a lot of reconnaissance. You know, a reconnaissance group may only work in a team of four or five or six or, or whatever. It's how they're tasked and who tasks them. Also, where they fit in with what's already going on. So if you take Iraq, for example, how you fit in with what the Americans are doing. And also you have a special objective. At the moment, the summer objective of the uh, Iraqi government-backed forces is to retake Mosul. And therefore, your concentration is you send 50 guys in and you say, right, look at what's there, what troops are there, look where their weaknesses are, but look where their target is. How do you reshape them, if necessary, so that they can go for their target? Assuming that the retaking of Mosul would succeed, how how big a blow would that be against Islamic State? Well, Islamic State wouldn't want that, obviously, because that's where they are, but it it would be quite a big blow. But it's also a big difficulty. Uh, You you don't sort of just rush in and say, OK, we've come, you go. Um, The whole place is booby-trapped, etc. But more importantly, once you take a place, you've got to be able to defend it. 
You've also got to reorganize the town, a big town, a small city, really, so that people do things like administration. They go to work, they get fed, they go into, into, into hospital, etc. You've got to be able to do that, but you've got to be able to do it, knowing that all the time you will get suicide bombers coming in, discover booby traps that weren't there before. That's why you have to have the sort of pretty high-class specialist who can actually say, recognise this and never forget it while you're doing it. And the International Coalition Against IS saying they're making progress, are they? Uh, yeah, uh, they're making some... Of, what kind of progress exactly? OK, the sort of progress that you make is that when you've got a town, and IS is no different from any other uh, pretty well-organised army, when you've got a town, you don't, don't sit, just sit in the town as if it was the, you know, the, the classical city of Troy. Uh, you have your uh, organised uh, regiments or organised battalion levels out, scattered around in dots all around you, rather like the figures in a clock, and the town actually sits in the middle of the clock. What they have been doing is taking out a especially in the south, they've been taking out some of the IS positions. The IS have pulled back from them. They're not in the north yet, but they've pulled back. Does Europe really need its own army? If it had one, would it be any different from NATO? And if it had one, would NATO have to go? The immediate debate is on the 23rd of June referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. Dr James Coram is a defence academic and military historian and joins us now from the University of Salford. Good to speak to you today, Dr Coram. Oh, it's um, good to be here. Uh, one thing that we don't often hear about is that when the EU was set up, one of the things it was supposed to do was prevent war in Europe. Why is that rare? talked about in this EU referendum debate? Well, even before the EU was established, there was talk about having a European alone army. This this goes back to the 1940s. It's been, it's been a constant dream since before I was born, and I'm not young. However, uh, frankly, it's never going to work. Uh, and, and the simple reason is, is that with very limited resources, and Europe keeps putting less into it, many countries keep putting less into defense, uh, what you the only way you can build a European army is to take existing structures, existing trained organizations, things that actually work out of NATO, and then try to craft a new organization. So what you do is that you would mm. damage NATO and then have this long roll-up position while you're trying to build this this EU so army. You're saying the two cannot go coexist then. Given the reality that the Europeans aren't willing to put uh, resources into funding a new organization, uh, yes, that's true. In that case, could Britain, if it did decide to leave the EU, be left without being part of any kind of military alliance? No, Britain Britain was a founded... Uh, in, the idea from NATO, uh, for NATO's existence, came from Britain. That was the first proposal back in the 1940s. Uh, the EU, uh, the United States is not part of the EU and, and Canada, uh, and we're certainly I'm, I'm part of NATO. I'm meaning if it were ever to go ahead, supposing that this European army were actually founded, supposing Britain did decide to leave the EU, where does that leave Britain if you're saying that NATO and an EU army cannot coexist? Well, you're, you're putting too many ifs up here if this happens. You know, I, I have sat at forums with uh, EU uh, diplomats, and they're always excited about having an EU army. And then the people who were there, who are experienced military and NATO officers, are saying, well, Mr. Diplomat, here's the reality uh, that I just mentioned, that you're going to have to take a, a highly functioning uh, organization. In, in fact, 
The reality is is that the EU countries with military capability uh, actually train and conform and do their training exercises to NATO doctrine. Uh, they're in a lot of ways incorporated within NATO. Uh, the, uh, I've seen the Austrians and the Finns will actually do, uh, the Austrians in particular, exercises and that will include, they'll tie into NATO exercises because they want to have proper training for their troops. So it's the other way around. Uh, NATO has uh, basically meant that even for the non-NATO nations, that an EU army is superfluous because NATO exists. Dr. Coram, um, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is also here today. I was just thinking, I mean, many years ago, um, the uh, Joe Luntz, who was then NATO Secretary General and a Dutchman, I remember him saying to me, uh, listen, I'm a Dutchman, but I would still be in command of anything that was a European army, but I wouldn't have one unless it had the Americans and the Canadians in it. So please, can we talk about something else? After all, you know, you want a headquarters. Where is the headquarters? The headquarters is out at Mons. It is, it is you know, Sakur is in charge of the whole lot. You cannot exist with, with having, like, two football teams, and that's what they'd be reduced to. And don't forget also that a lot of members of uh, the EU um, are members of NATO, and a lot of members of NATO are members of the EU. So it is a nonsense, and uh, you go back to San Marlo and, and conferences on frigates and things like this, and it's the sort of headline you come up, and it still runs sort of 15, 20 years later. Uh, Christopher, also announced has been the new top military commander in Europe. NATO has its new Sakur. Tell us a bit about this person. Supreme exactly. Allied uh, Commander Europe, uh, and, and this is General uh, Curtis uh, Scaplati, uh, who um, has got a fine career, in, incidentally, in, in, in South Korea and Afghanistan, etc. I'm a f- I'm fascinated. Put this thing in perspective of how people think or how people see Europe, how people see NATO. We see him as Supreme Ally Commander Europe, right? When it was announced in, in, in America and went out in the press release and went out in the, in the American newspapers, he was announced as the new commander of American forces in Europe. Hmm. There was no mention of uh, a NATO at all, but we see him in our parochial way. Uh, Dr. Coram, um, defence of Europe has never been more important and on the agenda. And you spent, what, six years, was it, in the Balkans? We see that Russia... Uh, in the Baltics. The Baltics, in, in, in sorry, Actually the living Baltics. in Estonia. <laughs> I was trying to explain why I'm quite interested in the defence issues and, and especially uh, with Russia. And Russia has deployed three new divisions to face NATO. Just explain what's going on there in your view. Well, there, there are a number of things. Uh, you know, the Russians are trying to do a military reform. Part of that is that uh, the Russians, in moving their forces around, they're trying to improve and professionalize their forces and re-educate them and, and better armament. New, uh, they have a very new military organization. Part of that is that they want to station troops in the better parts of Russia because troop morale, if you station a Russian soldier out in uh, the border of Uzbekistan, uh, tends to be rather low. So part of that is just practical, is that there's better housing and facilities and they're trying to improve those things. Now, frankly, I, I don't think the Russians will really succeed in doing the things that they want to with their military reforms, thank God. Uh, but uh, part of that is just the practical reality. Uh, and the other part is a little bit of saber rattling. Yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got, if you've got three divisions, and let's 
take it that they consist mainly of motor rifle brigades. So you've got 10,000 person, uh, personnel, you've got 30,000 personnel, two in the Western District, one perhaps in the Southern Military District. That is a major, major new deployment which has to have its own command system, its own logistics, uh, etc. And listening to the Defence Minister, uh, Sergei Shoigu, uh, talking about it, he wasn't belligerent but he was saying, well, you know, if, if, if NATO uh, is setting up different organizations and NATO is actually running exercises in this part of the world, um, they must expect this of us. And there was a fellow in the White House recently, Josh uh, Ernest, um, who, who said, you know, we have to expect this, but we have all to, all to also understand that it can be dealt with diplomatically rather than by megaphone. Gentlemen, for the moment, we'll leave it there. Dr. James Corum from the University of Salford, thanks for joining us today. Still to come, who's who at North Korea's 7th Workers' Party Congress? And Trump that, the Donald's done it! Aid agencies are warning that a crude massacre on a scale not seen since notorious events in Rwanda could be beginning in Africa. Christopher Ware. One of the difficulties is is uh, Western organisations don't talk about it very much, and one of the reasons for that is in a place called Burundi. Now, you look on a map and you look at it face down, you'll have Congo on one side, you'll have Uganda at the top of this little group, um, and uh, for those with long memories, uh, Rwanda, where there were terrible massacres of the Tutsis, and Tanzania on the other side. And there is Burundi. And you have in Burundi something like 250,000 refugees have already gone. Mm. You have people saying, look, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to kill more Tutsis. Uh, that's the uh, Hutus going to kill uh, Tutsis again. Uh, and and the, the point being that this is mirroring the kind of ethnic build-up of tensions that happened in Rwanda uh, yes. preceding and, the massacre And why there. we should take this seriously, this is not some local... Uh, argument that's got out of control. If you go back, I can think of six, seven, maybe uh, uh, massacres, major massacres. If you go back from 59, 63, mm. 72, uh, terrible, terrible times of 93 and 94, where millions died. And it was so, uh, half a million Tutsis alone were hacked to death so in what, 1994. In Burundi at the moment, what exactly is happening? Is that it, it, seem, it does appear that the, it's the president stoking up these tensions. It's the president stoking it up and the youth movement of the president and Kuru and Azai. What's, what's, what's being said, though, exactly? Uh, that some of these people, i.e. Tutsis, are only good for death. That's the kind of thing that's being put out. That is the so, that's the sort of. Uh, and what the evidence sort of is there saying. that there might be a build-up coming towards some kind? Uh, because of... some of them are already being killed, uh, and there was a, about extreme rebels only good for dying. Uh, that came out of the, uh, the the echoing the talks that we heard in 1994. Uh, also, people talking about machetes being uh, being bought in from 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 abroad. Now, what should we going to do about this? Well, uh, there's already economic sanctions being applied. Well, that doesn't mean a thing, uh, because if you imply economic sanctions, all the president has done is Could taken you... the money out of the health bill. What about UN peacekeeping potentially involving Britain? Is that at all on the agenda? That is possible, because the uh, in, in the Congo at the moment, as I said, the Congo is to the left of it, there are already UN peacekeepers, and it could be that you would have a small unit, perhaps in the United Kingdom, who go into uh, part of that UN keeping, which is actually brought into it and works with the African Union. That is the outcome as far as we see it at the moment, but nobody's doing a thing. 
North Korea's ruling Workers' Party will hold its first Congress in 36 years tomorrow. It'll be only the seventh such gathering in the party's history. So why hold it now? Let's talk to David Slynn, who was the first British ambassador to North Korea. Good to speak to you today, David. Um, the last Congress was held in 1980, so why now? That's a very good question. Um, Congresses have traditionally been held to launch new policies or new initiatives or new directions. Um, for Kim Jong-un, who has been in, in power for just over four years now, he's already set out his kind of uh, policy stall, what, where the direction he wants to take the country. Um, so nobody's really expecting any big init new initiatives. The general assumption amongst those who follow North Korea is that this is, uh, this, this is an opportunity, this is a platform for Kim Jong-un to, to consolidate his grip on power and to introduce uh, the, the next generation of uh, leaders uh, who he'll be relying on to support him in the coming years. Christopher, you're a North Korea watcher as well, aren't you? How do you see this? Well, in a strange sort of way, although he, uh, he took power or, or, or moved into the chair in October... October 2011, so, you know, it's, it, it is some time ago. I always see this as his, as his coronation. Um, this is all the people that have been moved out, all the people that are starting to move in. And don't forget, there's more than 100 senior party officials, generals, including his own uncle, so, were, so were exe executed. But there are the people that are now appearing, people like Ring Kwang Il, who's now the director of the People's Army. Um, and people who have been were out of it for some time, Ri um, Young Su, who was out of it, he's now in his 80s, retired, brought back in. Accepting that we have people who are watching this closer than I do, saying we get all these slogans that are appearing, and they all talk about youth, etc. And it is almost as if the dear leader is saying, "Look, I am part of the new generation, but we have these in these in particular these three people Dave, who are the safe pairs of hands." David Slynn, who do you think will be there, and what will be, who will be the faces to watch out for? Uh, again, uh, I don't think we know the answer to that question. It's probably something that only Kim Jong-un and a few around him um, really know the answer to. Uh, as always with uh, events in North Korea, um, it'll be important to watch who's on the platform with him um, at the Congress uh, because they are likely to be the people who will be uh, pulling the strings um, in, the, in the months and years to come. Do you see it very much as a coronation yourself? Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good description. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation um, as to the extent to, to which Kim Jong-un um, has struggled to impose himself um, on the system, um, the extent to which he has had to, um, to work hard to impose his style of leadership and his, um, his mechanisms, um, i.e. through the Korean Workers' Party rather than through the Korean People's Army, as his father did. Um, so I think the, the, the coming together of all the party faithful, you know, the, the party leadership from across the country, um, is, it, it, it's a good opportunity to, for Kim Jong-un to say, um, this is me, I'm in charge, and, and this is where Will we're going. Will it work? It'll certainly work on the day. <laughs> um, it will be, there'll be a lot of clapping um, and kind of a, lot, a, lot, a lot of statements coming out of the Congress um, talking about how successful Kim Jong-un has been and how successful he's going to be in the future. Mm. Um, but the, the, the real question, uh, which probably won't be debated in the hall itself because there won't be any debates, 
is where the economy is going to go. Kim Jong-un um, has promised economic development, um, but that is not easy when the, the international community has just imposed a fairly uh, uh, co comprehensive raft of sanctions through a UN Security Council resolution uh, designed to, I suppose, punish is the right word, North Korea for its uh, nuclear adventurism. So um, there, there's anecdotal evidence of questions being asked in, in, at, at grassroots level about what is going to happen to the economy. And that is what people are going to be watching. Do you um, know, if you, go, if you go back to uh, 1980, that last conference, uh, his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, he spoke for five hours... And people got up every so often, they cheered him. They bespoke five, and he spoke to some extent with a, a centre of strength about the economy. Now, look at the state of it. The economy is bad, you get famine, you get hunger, and he is better known throughout the world as the man that's created or had his people create nuclear weapons. You've created another nuclear state, a, a, a long-range ro rocket state, and he's seen as a pariah, not... Uh, as somebody who created a new economy. So, David Slynn, do, do you think there's going to be a big bang to celebrate? Uh, who knows? Uh, North Korea is always capable of springing surprises on the world. Um, I, I, I have no idea. We shall wait and see. Good to speak to you, David Slynn. Thank you very much for your time today. Donald Trump is the last man standing in the race to secure the Republican presidential nomination. It looks likely he'll face Hillary Clinton, but rival Democrat Bernie Sanders is still giving her a run for her money. Let's talk to Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington. Good to speak to you today, Simon. Can you believe it? Well, I keep pinching myself, but uh, it seems to be true. Uh, and I think we're stuck with him. And if we're stuck with him, the Republicans are definitely stuck with him. We can talk about that uh, in a moment. Uh, but look, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, you know, Christmas parties here in Washington, D.C. were dominated by uh, the great and the good in Washington telling me that there was no way Trump was going to win the nomination. The yes. money was all going to flow to Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush. And it has not come to pass. Yes. So He's the lesser city of American politics. Yeah, and, and Simon, <laughs> no way it was going to happen so much so. I think you said you'd eat your hat. I, I did say uh, on the day that he uh, threw his hat into the race on another radio station uh, that uh, there was absolutely no way in which Donald Trump would be the nominee, that he was nothing more than a clown and a political circus act, and we could completely disregard him. So that shows how much I know. So, listen, just are his tactics likely to change, do you think? Are we well, going to see a different man question. emerge? Well, we saw a different man on Tuesday night here when he won the Indiana primary, which, of course, is what put him over the top and led Ted Cruz and John Kasich to drop out. And he suddenly lowered his voice and hmm. he was trying to be a lot more presidential, flanked, of course, by the stars and stripes. And he is under pressure from his advisers now to adopt a new tone. But uh, first of all, it's too late for that. I mean, he can't disown the tone that he adopted on the primary uh, campaign trail in which he embraced uh, violent rhetoric, often insightful language uh, during those primary contests. Mm -hmm. And also he himself has said, look, it doesn't come naturally to me to be presidential. That's not who I am. So whether he sticks with this new tone, I think is very much in question. Do you think he'll disown the tone on NATO? Because he seems to have backed away from saying such strong words that he said against the alliance in recent well, times. 
it's a very interesting question because one of his uh, foreign policy advisers, yes, he has them, uh, George Papadopoulos, has been saying in the last few days that David Cameron needs to apologise to Donald Trump for the things that he said late last year about Donald Trump, in which he dismissed him as reckless and some of his ideas as stupid. Uh, and Mr Papadopoulos has said, uh, you know, we rely on Britain, it's a cornerstone of NATO. Well, that's the same NATO that Donald Trump has argued over the last couple of months has outlived its usefulness. Mm. The problem with Trump is anything that he says is sort of worthless 30 seconds after he said it because he's likely to say something different going forward. And that, I by can the relate way, is to that, real... Simon. <laughs> but that's a real challenge to the British government and other governments around the world who have not so far engaged in very much outreach with the Trump campaign or Trump's advisers because they didn't initially uh, take him seriously. But now there's only Hillary Clinton standing between him and the Oval Office and they're going to have to start forming engaging in some kind of discussion to try and understand exactly where he stands. OK, a um, couple of points strike me. A, Trump is going to get the, whatever it is, 1237 uh, delegates sure, that he, he, he needs sure. because there's nobody else going to get them. Um, it's also a case of America is quite frightened of Trump, but so far a lot of the people who would naturally vote Republican have gone along with it. They don't much like... Hillary Clinton or so the evidence suggests. I mean, it could be a much closer, closer thing than perhaps, you know, uh, we, we might imagine or certainly we'd have imagined at the beginning. Mm. So Christopher, I think there's a, there's a couple of things to remember. Elections are won in the United States in the centre. They're not won at the extremes. So both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, who have got huge negatives and legions of people who dislike them on either side, they have to find a way, first of all, of unifying their own parties around their respective candidacies. That's not going to be easy. And then secondly, they've got to find a way of reaching those all-important swing voters in battleground states like Florida, Michigan, uh, Ohio and all the rest that we'll be focusing on this November. Uh, and, you know, most analysts here argue that Hillary Clinton is better placed to reach those swing voters than Donald Trump, but neither of them is particularly well placed to reach them, which is why this, is, I think, is going to be an intense battle that now plays out uh, in the months that lie between where we are today and Election Day in November. Just briefly, Simon... In those months that lie ahead, uh, over what might you be eating your hat next? <laughs> well, that is a very, very good question because, and, and to be serious about it, you know, conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. is now uh, worthless. I mean, it's worth the same as swampland in Florida at this point. Uh, you know, conventional wisdom will tell you Hillary Clinton is going to be the next president because Donald Trump cannot win it. Uh, you know, conventional wisdom has been turned on its head over the last six months. Let's see what happens in the next six. All right, Simon Marks and Peter Story News. Thank you for your time today. Admiral Sir Edward Ashmore died last week, aged 96. He was, at the height of the Cold War, successively Vice Chief of the Naval Staff, Commander-in-Chief Fleet, First Sea Lord and Chief of the Defence Staff. Uh, Christopher, tell us a bit more about him. Um, he he was quite a remarkable man, in the, certainly in the 1970s, when there was a defence minister called Roy Mason, and who, who 
almost decimated the, the British Armed Forces, but certainly the Navy. And it was Edward Ashmore who very cleverly more or less saved the idea of having Harrier uh, uh, aircraft, Harrier jump jets. But the biggest story I like, because I worked for him for just for a, a little time, about two or three months, when he was Commander-in-Chief Fleet. And the Navy, Roy Mason in particular, said, look, we're not going to have any more aircraft carrier. Got it? Got it, says the Admiral. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Minister. Surprising. But hang on, i tell you what, why don't we have a through-deck cruiser instead? And everybody in the Ministry of Defence said, yes, well, that'd be all right, through-deck cruiser. Don't want a, an aircraft carrier, through-deck cruiser. What he was designing was HMS Invincible. Mm. Very smart Admiral. And also somebody who really saw the Royal Navy through a period of great transformation. Enormous transformation. Uh, it, was, it was really taking it into a new period of the Cold War, if you think about it, the 70s and coming up to the 80s, but in particular the 70s. This was a time that wasn't that far beyond, uh, beyond, beyond the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were going to have a near miss because of a mistake in the Cold War. It could have been a nuclear, a nuclear war in the, in the early 80s. This was a radical change in the way the Navy worked and the way the Navy thought. Uh, I asked him once if he'd, he'd made a good general, because he'd sorted out the Navy. He said, oh, yes, yeah, I made a good general. I said, why is that? He said, well, I love horses. <laughs> what kind of a leader? Well, he obviously has a sense of humour, didn't he? He had an enormous sense of Deadpan, completely deadpan indeed. Um, and he persuaded that his, that his flag lieutenant, when a, a visiting captain turned up from HMS wherever, instead of saying, right, Lieutenant Commander, introduce him, knock on the door, you know, sort of, morning, Admiral, uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Jones... He would call him by his ship, as they used to do in Nelson's Navy. Briefly, what did HMS you... Penelope, and then would mince this naval officer who would sort of fulfil his great expectations. What do you think you learnt from him? I learnt uh, to keep a straight face when admirals were laughing. <laughs> because they were testing me to see if I had a sense of humour. Well, that is all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can download the podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We're back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Three years.